Well, thanks for having me back here at Daybreak at Good Hope Road. If you don't know me, my name is Matt Boyer, uh, formerly on staff at Daybreak, uh, student ministries pastor, currently, I guess you could say like pastor at large or something. I don't really know what the proper term is for me right now, but I can tell you this, that I am really enjoying working on a fast food truck with my brother-in-law, working at a coffee shop, and also substitute teaching. So I'm staying real busy and having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, and just thankful for the place that, um, that God has me right now. And, and still, Laurie and I are just faithfully asking God to, to continue to give us direction for what's next. So thanks for having me, be, having me back here. I remember the last time I was here speaking was the last time I spoke at Daybreak was at this campus. And when I was here, I confided in you guys that I actually enjoyed preaching here the most. Like, I turned it into a rivalry between here and Gettysburg Pike. And I said, I like being at Good Hope Road the most. And, and someone in here must have told them. Because now they're like, well, you can go back and speak Good Hope Road again. You're gonna... So I don't know whether they don't like me there or you really like me here. But it's some combination of the two that brings me before you here this morning. So I'm happy to be here with you. And I don't really know if any of you tattled on me. Uh, but I am happy to be here this morning, and I'm thankful for the opportunity I have to talk on this subject of being grateful, mostly because I struggle with this a lot. I, I'm not as grateful as I should be, and maybe you're similar to me, that you recognize God has blessed you, provided for you in incredible ways, and yet you seem to always kind of vacillate back and forth between thankfulness and selfishness, and thankfulness and selfishness, or gratefulness and greediness, and that's where I kind of go back and forth between, that I have seasons where I'm very grateful and very aware, even minutes that I'm very aware of all that God has provided for me, and then minutes shortly thereafter where I'm feeling like I wish I had something that I don't have. So maybe you can relate to that. Uh, I do love Thanksgiving, and I, I did have to laugh when I got the invitation from Jason, who's the guy that kind of makes contact with me or other guys when they have a Sunday where they don't have one of the like regular staff to speak, that they contact us, hey, are you available this weekend? And I just had to laugh when the invitation was for Thanksgiving weekend, because when I was on staff at Daybreak, it was like Thanksgiving weekend, like as the youth pastor, that was always my weekend. <laughs> so I can remember saying to Laurie a few months ago, like, what are they going to do on Thanksgiving? Lo and behold, here I am once again on Thanksgiving weekend uh, preaching. But I always loved it. I was always excited to have the opportunity uh, mostly because I just love Thanksgiving so much. It's one of my favorite holidays. I mean, when you kind of start and end with lots of football and lots of food, that's a pretty great holiday for me. I love that as a holiday. So maybe you love Thanksgiving too, but it's easy for me to be thankful and to be grateful on Thanksgiving because, you know, there's so much of the things that I love on Thanksgiving, spending time with friends and family and enjoying that time. It's, it's easy to be thankful on Thanksgiving Day. But I got to tell you, it's the other 364 days of the year that's the problem, right? I mean, yeah, I'm thankful on Thanksgiving because we're focused on all the things we have to be thankful for. But pretty soon the next day or maybe even later in the day, I'm already feeling a little bit less than thankful. Um, you know, we see that culturally, don't we? That we spend our day together on Thursday giving thanks and then there's fist fights at Walmart the next day. <laughs> because of all the Black Friday sales, right? So we see that happen. Like, well, we get, we get the day, or really now, we only get till 6 o'clock to be grateful, and then it's mad rush to get the stuff again, right? So that we can feel grateful, feel like we've got what we need again. So it is this thing that we struggle with both as a society, but also 
I'm sure many of you as individuals can relate to what I'm saying, that we go back and forth between feeling thankful for God's provision and then feeling like, I wish I had more. Uh, maybe here's some of the things that might hit home for you. You might think to yourself, my salary is not enough. You know, I, yeah, God's providing for me, but I don't have as much as the person next to me. And why does my neighbor seem to always have money to do this or to do that or make this new purchase? And I'm just kind of trying to scrape by to make it work. I, my salary is not enough. Or maybe sometimes you feel like if you're a parent, my kids are not enough. Why can't I get them together for one stinking Thanksgiving photo that we can post on Facebook so that everybody can see what a beautiful family we have? I cannot get my kids to smile for that photo. Or maybe you think to yourself, my spouse is not enough. If you're married, you think, man, my spouse, why, why can't my husband or my wife post those beautiful things about me on Facebook on anniversaries and birthdays? Why can't they come up with that flowery language to describe how wonderful I am as a person? Why is my spouse not enough? Or sometimes, in maybe our more honest moments, we might feel like I am not enough. I know that's something that I've said before. I'm just not enough. I want to be a better spouse, a better parent, a better brother, a better son. I, I want to be better at what I do. Why can't, why can't I be enough? Why can't I ever get things right? Why am I always so inadequate? Why are there four uh, shoeboxes in the passenger seat of our van that never got filled for Samaritan's Purse, right? Like, I'm not enough to get those four boxes filled with my kids. And that's an every year thing, by the way. It's a cycle with us as a family. We get the boxes and they don't get filled. And we start to feel like, I am just not enough. I just can't get it right. And this is what happens when our gratitude is based on our circumstance, is that our circumstance and our feelings about our circumstance dictate to us how grateful or how appreciative or how thankful we are to God. And we move back and forth between gratitude and greediness based on how we feel in the moment. But what if our feelings are lying to us? Because I think sometimes they are. Our feelings are telling us, you have all of these reasons that you should feel like you're not getting as much as you should. There's all of these reasons that you feel like you need something more, but our feelings are lying to us, that God has already provided for us in miraculous ways. He's provided so much more uh, than we could have ever provided for ourselves. I mean, what if our gratitude was based on something other than our feelings? What if it was based on the promises that God gives to us in Scripture that he is going to provide for us, that if he cares for the lilies of the field, if he cares for the birds of the air, then so much more is he going to care for you and for me, his children. What if we, what if we relied on that promise to determine our gratitude? You remember a guy named David? You know, the one in the Bible? I mean, maybe you know other Davids. I'm talking about the one in the Bible. And David, I mean, the thing that he's most known for is that he defeated Goliath, right? And that's the one that everybody knows because it's a really good story to tell your kids and like, yeah, you can conquer over the enemy if God is on your side. That's good. And that's a very easy one to preach, right? Like I could do a message on David and Goliath and we'd all leave out of here triumphant and ready to tackle the giants, right? So we know that part of the story. What you may not know if you haven't spent a whole lot of time studying the life of David is that there were some moments of great triumph, but there was a ton of tragedy in his life too. And some of those things were brought on by mistakes that he made, decisions that he made that led him to a place that was not God's design. But then some of them were not his fault. He was betrayed by people that he loved, the, the people that were close to him. And the psalm that we're going to read together today, Psalm 42, is in one of those moments where he was betrayed by the people that were closest to him. There was this young man in, in the kingdom of Israel that wanted David's throne. And so this young man, his name was Absalom. And he would go sit 
by the road on the way in to the city gate. And he would sit there because he knew that when people needed the king for something, that was the way they were going to come. From all of these neighboring towns and cities, they would come on that road into the city. And when they were on their way in, he would stop them and he would find out, what is it that you're coming to King David for? And he would say, you know what? King David, now these are my words, King David doesn't care about you. He's up there in his palace. He's not accessible. But I'm here with you because I'm, I'm one of the people just like you are. And if I was king, I would make sure that your needs are met. I would settle this dispute that you have. Or I would make sure that you were provided for if you don't have what you need. I would do for you what David will not because he's just up there in his palace. He's just loving life up there in the palace. And I'm down here with you because I care about you, the little people. This was the message that Absalom was speaking and he did this consistently for four years. So if this was his plan to do this for four years, there was certainly a good bit of uh, planning that came before this, before he even started those four years of just sitting there by the gate and winning the favor of the people. And eventually he got to the point where he had a, an impressive enough following that he basically just sent his people that supported him out into the city. And he said, just go tell everybody that I have been proclaimed as king. I mean, it wasn't truth, but he just thought, if enough people say it, then maybe they'll believe it. And it actually worked to the extent that David was notified by his advisors that, hey, this guy Absalom, he just told everybody that he's king. And now he's actually got a mob on his side and they're coming after you. So David gathers all of his servants, gathers his men, and they take off. They leave the city. He, flee he flees the city. He leaves the city of Jerusalem. And he's on the run for his life, as he has been at, at other times, if you look at the life of David. He's on the run for his life, trying to get away from Absalom. Now, this story as it is, is already pretty rough. I mean, you've got this guy, this young upstart that's trying to take control of the kingdom away from you, and that's bad enough. But what you may not know is that Absalom was not just some young man in the city. He was actually David's son. He was actually David's son. This was the guy that was trying to take control from David. Now, David wanted Absalom to be king, but he did not want it to happen this way. He envisioned handing off control of the kingdom to his son, who he had trained and mentored and prepared for this role. And instead, there's a whole bunch of history that we won't get into today. Instead, there was this divide that had been driven between him and his son to the point that now his son just said, I'm not waiting patiently. I'm not being mentored by David. I'm taking what is mine right now. And that is the context in which David wrote Psalm 42. He says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng, throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep, in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? 
My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Can you imagine David weeping as he writes? I mean, you can sense his pain and the loss as he pours out his heart. This is not the way it was supposed to happen. And yet, even in the midst of that, you see it halfway through the psalm, and then you see him come back to this concept at the end, that even in this mess that has been created, even still his hope is in God. He laments his situation, but he still recognizes, recognizes God's direction and God's provision for him. He asks the question. He honestly wonders. He writes it here in the psalm. God, where are you in all of this? Have you ever felt like that? I mean, whether it was due to your own choices that led you to that place or whether it was something that you entered into innocently, that you didn't make any choice to lead you to this place, but you just found yourself in a moment where you were saying, God, where are you? I'm asking for your help. Where are you? Why have you forgotten me? Just like David said, why have you forgotten me? And we see this many times in David's writing, this honesty and intimacy before God, that there were times that David honestly wanted to know, God, where are you? What are you doing? He didn't pretend it wasn't there. He didn't try to cover that up. Instead, he brought it right out in the open, and God met him in that place. Have you ever been guilty of doing the opposite? Instead of being honest with God or honest with people around you that care about you, you just try to put on a happy face and act like it's going to be fine. I'll just tough it out. Right? We do that. We're, we're humans. We tend to trust in our humanity over making ourselves vulnerable to somebody else or vulnerable to God. Maybe you think that if you complain about your circumstance to God, that maybe it brings your faith into question. Maybe that's your concern. But I want to make sure you understand something this morning, is that your lament, our lament, the things that we're upset about, that is every bit as much evidence of your love for God. Sharing that openly with him is as much evidence of your love for God as the praises are that you sing to him. By going to him in those moments where you are hurting and you are broken and letting your lament be known to him, speaking that to him, that is as much evidence of your love for God as is your praise for him. I mean, think about it in the context of your friendships, the people that you're closest to. When do they know that you trust them the most? It's not when you share the good times with them. It's when you are hurting and you are broken and you trust them with something deeper than the surface. And that's the moment that they recognize this is a person that truly cares for me and trusts me as their friend. Well, that's what God desires with you also. He desires deeper intimacy with you. So when you go to him and you're honest with him about the things that are hurting, the things you don't understand, when you say to him, God, where are you? He loves to be with you in those moments because it shows that even in your darkest moments, you are willing to put your life in his hands, that you trust that he has something that he wants to say to you in the middle of that tough circumstance. If you hung out with somebody and you could consider them your best friend, wouldn't you want to paint for them the, the clear, accurate picture of what your life is? You wouldn't hide behind pretense and make it look like you were something that you weren't. No, if, if they're a best friend of yours, you would have that deeper level of intimacy with them. And so God desires that level, int level of intimacy with you too. And this is clear in Scripture. Jesus actually called us his friends. He said in John 15 when he was talking to his followers, 
I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. He said, instead, I've called you friends. You are my friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. See, Jesus said that to his earliest followers, and he said that to them because they were his followers. They had chosen to follow his plan for their lives. They were following his direction. And so that promise is the same to each one of you in this room. If you've said, God, I want to live according to your plan, you've invited Jesus to give you new life, to take care of your sin, to, to forgive you for your sin, to give you new direction, new life in him. When you walk with him, he says, I call you my friend. And a friend doesn't distance themselves. A friend doesn't say, oh, I'm not going to let you in on this deeper level. No, a friend goes to Jesus and says, okay, I'm going to let you in on all of it. He wants you to verbalize that to him. Be honest, be intimate with him, because he knows it deepens the relationship that you have with him. We see tons of examples in Scripture of people being honest with God, sharing really hard things with God, and yet despite their circumstances, they still have hope in God. They're talking about really tough things, but they still have hope. Even in the middle of their, their lament, they're able to express gratitude and praise to God. How does this happen? Well, I had a really interesting example of this, and I'm amazed at how often this actually happens when I'm preaching on whatever subject it happens to be. But just this morning, as I'm kind of getting myself ready to leave the house, we have four kids. Our two oldest were downstairs already. And when I came upstairs to get my shower and get ready, my mom is visiting for the week, and she was downstairs with them. And at some point, she must have gone downstairs herself to get ready. And so the two oldest are sitting there in the room, just kind of, I don't know, doing whatever they were doing together. At some point, somehow a football got involved. And they were going to throw the football back and forth. And upstairs in the shower, I can hear something escalating. Like it's getting louder and louder. And then all of a sudden, there's screaming involved. And so I come down from upstairs like halfway ready saying, what is going on in here? And at the same time, my mom is coming up from downstairs with like rollers in her hair, like, what's happening in here? We're all trying to figure out what is this huge argument about. I mean, just Dylan is screaming at Kenzie as loud as he can. And I came out, what is going on in here? And Dylan says, she threw the football behind the couch and she won't go get it. Like that, that was it. That was the whole knockdown, drag out fight was over the fact that Kenzie had thrown the ball behind the couch and would not get it out from behind the couch. So I said, Dylan, because he was completely like out of control emotionally, I said, Dylan, go upstairs for five minutes. I'm going to talk to Kenzie. So I talked to Kenzie. I said, Kenzie, I understand that you were upset in this moment, but I want you to replay this situation and just think about what if when the ball went behind the couch, you went and got the ball? <laughs> like, don't you think this whole situation would have been avoided? And through tears, she's like, yeah, I think I could have done that. And so then I go upstairs, and I'm talking to Dylan, and I'm calming him down, and I'm assuring him, hey, I, I love you, but like we can't have this kind of an outburst over a football. I had a conversation with him, and I left, and I then was late coming here. So I sent uh, Pastor Sean a text, and my text said, hey, I'm on my way. ETA is about 8.10 had to break up a fight between my oldest two kids, hashtag grateful. That was, that was my text. And so when I, when I got here, Sean was like, oh, I had to laugh when I got your text message. He said, I know exactly what that's about. He's like, my, my, my sons argue sometimes too. And so we, we definitely kind of had that moment there where we recognized, yeah, we've both been through the same struggle here. That Sometimes these arguments, these things that we walk our kids through are completely crazy. It's like, why, why are they fighting over this thing? 
And I have to tell you, if I'm being honest with you, probably nine out of ten times, that's a situation that when I'm walking away from a situation, I'm just mad and frustrated. Why can't my kids get along? Like, What is that about? How are they fighting over a stupid football? I can't believe this. And then that sometimes turns into, well, if you were any kind of a good parent, you'd be able to help them better in that situation, and they wouldn't be fighting the way that they are. And I mean, it just escalates so quickly to the point that I'm feeling very ungrateful, very upset, feeling inadequate as a parent, feeling like my kids aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so quickly, I can get into that mindset. But maybe because I had been working through this message and working through this passage of Scripture this week, that in that moment this morning, as I left the house and I'm driving, I started saying, thank you to God for my kids. I started saying, God, thank you for the honor of breaking up a fight between my kids. Thank you, God, for the honor and the responsibility of raising my kids to love you. Thank you, God, that you entrusted me with them. Thank you, God, for my wife, that we get to raise these kids together. And as I started to say thank you, and I started to cultivate a heart of gratitude, being grateful for what God had given me in my children, it was amazing. I started thinking of all of the other things that I had to be grateful for, too. And that's the way gratitude, that's the way thankfulness works, is that when we, when we change our perspective to say, God, help me become aware of what it is that I have to be thankful for, we suddenly become aware of all of the things that we have to be thankful for. I had one of the most enjoyable 15-minute rides to church that I've ever had because I was just thinking, God, you have blessed me with so much. You have provided for me in such an incredible way. And that's why our big idea for the day is this, that being grateful is not based on having great circumstances, but it's on having a relationship with a great God. Our relationship with him is what sustains us. And no, it's not always pretty. We don't always trust him completely. We are not without sin. We make mistakes. We ask questions. We're not above asking why. And that is okay because we see that in David's desperation. David said this, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning? In other words, God, why is this happening? We've all been there. We ask that question of God. God, why is this happening? He's not ashamed of us in that moment. He's thankful that we are opening the door to a deeper level of intimacy with him. This is such a natural response to circumstances that we don't understand. We ask why, and God's okay with us asking why. But often, as was the case with David, we don't get to know the answer to the why. We don't get to see why right now. Maybe we can't fully comprehend the why right here and now. Maybe there's some things that we won't fully understand until the day we see him face to face. But what we learn from David David is what we need to apply also, is that we don't need to know the answer to the why. We can ask the why and then find our trust and our hope in who. That when we trust God, we don't have to worry about the answers to the why. We can give those whys to God and then we can move on. I love the way the psalm reads, as Psalm 42 reads. It's almost like David is having this conversation with himself. It's like the self part of him, his humanity is talking, and then his faith is answering his humanity. And so that's why halfway through and then also at the end, you see this question that David asks himself, and then he answers it based on his faith in God. The question is, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then the answer is, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So after all of his processing, all of his praying, all of his lamenting, this is where David is left, asking himself this question, why are you downcast? Why are you disturbed? Because you have the hope of God within you. You do not need to be downcast. You do not need to be disturbed 
you have hope in God. Another translation of verse 11 reads this way, yet I will praise him. Just kind of mixes up the order a little bit. Yet I will praise him. In other words, when our circumstance threatens to push us away from God's goodness, our recognition of his provision, when it's trying to lean away from gratitude and into greediness or away from thankfulness and into selfishness, we can respond, we can reset by saying these words, yet I will praise him, yet I will praise him. So when I'm struggling to pay the bills, yet I will praise him. When my career isn't going the direction I expected, yet I will praise him. When my friends disappoint me, yet I will praise him. When my family hurts me, when God feels far from me, when I'm overwhelmed, when I'm asking God why, yet will I praise him. Whatever is happening in your life, you can still say, yet I will praise him. I can trust that God is good, that there is hope. You know, David isn't the only one to reach this conclusion. We see it throughout the Bible with many characters in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's Jonah and there's Noah. And in the New Testament, we see this same thing echoed from Paul and from Peter. Uh, But one that we see this come out very clearly is the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Now, you may also know that there's a book in the Bible called Lamentations, which means the passionate expression of grief and sorrow. I know, you probably like read it for your devotions like every week. Like, oh God, I can't get enough Lamentations. Love hearing the people whine, right? Like that's my favorite thing. No, maybe that's not one that you spend a lot of time in. Uh, but recently I became, uh, um, I was impacted by hearing some of the words read out of Lamentations chapter 3. There's a resource that I use. It's a podcast called the Daily Audio Bible. And if you've ever struggled to make a consistent habit of spending time in the Bible and learning things from the Bible consistently, I would encourage you to use this. You may have heard me say this before. Daily Audio Bible podcast can be a really good resource for you. But it's just a guy that gets on there every day, and he reads a portion of Scripture. And if you stick with him all year long, you read through the entire Bible over the course of the year. And so one day, a few weeks ago, we were working our way through the book of Lamentations. And before we started the book, he was talking about the the context in which Jeremiah was writing the book of Lamentations. Now, obviously, Lamentations, this is a sorrowful book. It's an expression of grief over where the people of Israel have come and, and the state that Jerusalem is in. And Jeremiah had been warning the people for a long time that destruction was coming if they didn't change their ways, and they didn't listen and didn't listen and didn't listen, and now the Babylonians had come in and destroyed everything that they held dear. Uh, All of the people, almost all of the people had been marched out to other cities, and now there was just this tiny remnant of the poorest of the poor people left behind in Jerusalem, essentially to care for the, the plants and hopefully grow something so that if they decided to come back later to get produce, they could take that as well. Like, just a a handful of people were left behind. And Jeremiah, as a prophet, was not one of great social standing, so he was left behind too. And this is the context in which he wrote the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah was sitting in the rubble of the city of Jerusalem. After years of the unfaithfulness of God's people, the Lord allowed the city to be overthrown. And Jeremiah likely witnessed the destruction. He was probably a firsthand observer of that destruction. And as he sat there, he could see the charred remains of Solomon's temple, which was a symbol of great hope and connection with God for the people of Israel. He sat there wishing that Jerusalem was still the old Jerusalem, but it wasn't. And yet, even in that terrible circumstance, seeing everything in his life literally burned to the ground, Jeremiah was able to look at that and find hope that God is good even when life is not. 
Imagine that Jeremiah wrote these words, Lamentations 3, 21 to 26, while sitting in the rubble of Jerusalem. He says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. You may have heard it said this way. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, you probably recognize some of those words, but you may not have realized the context in which they were written. How is it good? How could Jeremiah say that it's good that he was sitting in the remains of Jerusalem? Because when everything else was stripped away, he knew that he still had hope in God. And so it is with you. You might be asking today, how is this good? How is this thing that I'm going through or my friend is going through, how is this good? And the answer to that is even when everything else is stripped away, it is good because you still have him. Jeremiah could say it is good in the middle of the sorrow and the chaos and the destruction because he truly believed it. That, didn't mean he, that doesn't mean he didn't lament. He did. He wrote several letters that are now compiled as the Book of Lamentations for us where he lamented what was going on. He was sorrowful. He was truly upset about what had become of the people of Israel. His expression of sorrow to God. It was one of the worst moments of his life. And yet, he could still say that God was good and God would prove himself faithful. Can you and I say it is good even when life is not? And can we endure tough circumstances and not just endure them, but actually thank God for those circumstances? We can when we realize that by being grateful, it's, it's not based on our circumstances. It's based on having a relationship with a great God that loves us and cares for us. Now, both of these stories, both David's and Jeremiah's, they end with hope and praise, but they really began with both of them being very honest about what it is that they were upset about. This morning might be your opportunity to just be honest with God about what is hurting now, even if there are good things happening in your life, there may be parts of it that you just don't understand. And you haven't taken the time to just say to God, why? Like, why am I going through this? Give me hope in the middle of this difficult situation. So what we want to do is we want to give you a few moments just to sit and wait in God's presence. Let him minister to you. And we're going to play a song. And as it plays, I'm just asking that God will speak to you, that maybe he'll speak to you through some of the notes you've taken today, or maybe he'll speak to you through the lyrics of the song. Uh, but don't feel like you need to be rushed to move on from this song. We are going to take communion today, but that's going to come after this moment of personal reflection. Use this time to connect intimately with God and share with him what's on your heart and allow him to speak hope into your life. You'll notice as you listen that this song itself, not only is it named lament, but it really is a lament. There's things mentioned at the beginning, at beginning of the song that are just sorrowful, that are hurting for the author, for the writer of the song. But then you'll also notice that just as David and Jeremiah did, you'll notice in the bridge there's this remembrance of God's faithfulness that is anchored in faith in who God is. And that's what helps the writer to hold on to hope despite what she's challenged by. So we're going to bring down the lights just uh, slightly here. And I'm going to invite you to take a breath. And in the next few minutes, as you hear this song, just let your guard down. Be open and honest with him. Uh, share, him share with him what you're going through. And then God will speak to us as well. Lord, I love you. Thank you for the chance to really bear our hearts to you. I know, Lord, that you'll meet us here in this moment.
in your name we pray.
had a chance to just share with God what is on your heart, be open and honest with him, allow this to be a moment where he now communicates to you. Maybe there's something that you want to share with us so that we can know how to pray for you this week. I would encourage you uh, while the song is played to go ahead and uh, write down your response on the card today. Also just want to remind you about the Blue Christmas. Uh, would really encourage you uh, to come out to that service. Um, and ideally, bring somebody with you. Uh, you might be hurting. You know somebody that's hurting that just needs to process some of that hurt. Um, maybe they don't even know they need that time. But I would encourage you to not just say, hey, you should go to that thing, but actually go alongside of them and say, hey, I want to bring you with me, and I want to walk through this experience with you.